Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver. Wow, what a week of cultural evolution at warp speed again, as we all get to experience together this drama with Megan. Talk about a daytime TV drama, this thing with Megan Kelly, where we had on Monday her defending blackface on her NBC morning show, uh, defending it as a costume choice for Halloween. By Wednesday, she apologized that she had had her consciousness raised and she realized that that was actually a terrible idea. And today being fired apparently by NBC and the show is over. And, um, and I wanna sort of look at that through an integral lens and try to tease apart the forces that are at work here and how it is actually you know, moving us forward. My, my thesis here is that we are experiencing mass group therapy uh, as a culture. And I think it's to the good. Uh, then I wanna look at another segment that was done on Dr. Phil this week that didn't make any news that I know of, but it was equally potent in its own way. And in this same category of group therapy for the masses. So anyway, let's start by looking at the Megyn Kelly story. And of course, Megyn Kelly is not just a big TV star, but she's become and will, will with this uh, more so become a cultural figure in the sense that she was the, uh, you know, blonde, smart uh, babe on, in, in the evening Fox lineup. Uh, and she looked like all the other blonde babes on Fox, except she was really smart and really cutting in, in a way. And she was, you know, good, respect, respectable newswoman. And she led the first uh, um, debates for the Republicans. And this is where she asked Trump about why he called women pigs and dogs. And he was insulted. <laughs> you know, he's so good at that. Uh, <laughs> and then after the, he, he said something uh, during the debate, but after he said um, that uh, Megyn Kelly had had it out for him and that she was bleeding from her eyes and from her mouth and from her wherever. And that was the first time all us smart people thought that Trump was toast. Many have come since. But you can't really say that, can you? Hey. Anyway, so here she is uh, on Monday on her show talking about costumes and Halloween. And I'm going to play a, a, a segment that was produced about her segment. Uh, and this is, was done by ABC News. So it'll sort of take us through the timeline. It's about a minute and 30 seconds. So here we'll start. But what, what is racist? Because, because so truly, you do get in trouble if you are a white person who puts on yes, blackface yes. on Halloween or a black person who puts on whiteface yes. for Halloween. Like, I, back when I was a kid, that was okay as long as you were dressing up as like a character. Kelly and her all-white panel were discussing costumes like this one, a real housewife dressed as Diana Ross. She made her skin look darker than it really is, and people said that that was racist. And I don't know, I felt like, 
Who doesn't love Diana Rush? After a firestorm online, Kelly apologized in an email to colleagues. But this morning, her Today co-hosts, including Al Roker, were openly critical. She owes a bigger apology to folks of color around the country because this is a history going back to the 1830s minstrel shows to to mean and denigrate uh, a race blackface became a hollywood tradition where white actors would paint their faces black as a form of ridicule kelly educated today about that painful history i learned that given the history of blackface being used in awful ways by racists in this country it is not okay for that to be part of any costume, Halloween or otherwise. After Kelly's apology, a standing ovation. And now that standing ovation is the source of even more backlash. Social media users pounce, saying while her apology was necessary, the ovation was cringeworthy and undermines the point of the apology in the first place, David. All right, Lindsay, thank you. All right, so you see the you know, basic story as it was laid out. And what was interesting to me in her first comment in defense of this costume choice was back when I was a kid, it was okay as long as you were in character. And that back when I was a kid is such a marker for a traditional worldview coming out. You know that you're going to hear that because back when I was a kid, it, it, in a way, for, for a, at the traditional stage of development, it is the standard for the way the world should be, you know, if it's adequately healthy. And it's hard to give up this closed, somewhat, yet intimate, lushy, liquidy world that we inhabit as kids where we feel that deep familial connection with other people, and we don't have to work with it, for better or for worse. But when we leave home, we have to work for it. And sometimes we don't find it. It's hard to find outside of the home. So, you know, that's the upside of that traditionalism. And we can feel into the sort of sweet safety of that. But we can also see, it, those of us who have, you know, grown beyond it in a way, is that that view doesn't really have much of an antenna for people outside the family bubble. And I thought that it was really well said this morning in a column in the New York Times by, by John, um, I'll try his name, Panay Awozik, who I really like. I just have always seen his name. I've never tried to pronounce it, but I, I gave it a good try there. But he, um, he talks about, he describes this mindset in, in, in the context of Megyn Kelly. And he says, it is this mindset, this worldview at heart, uh, it is the worldview of people who didn't have to think much about sharing their world with people different from them. They were never asked to learn much about these people or consider how their actions or speech or their, quote, harmless entertainment might exclude or hurt these other folks. Now people like Kelly are being asked to learn, and they're puzzled or irritated or downright angry about it. And I think that's well said. I would, I, I think he left a category out. I think people are regretful about it. People can learn from it. And I think that Megyn Kelly did. And um, for further evidence, <laughs> I will play the show from her midweek, or a piece of it, where she sat 
at her, her normal roundtable, which is how she starts her show, uh, this time with Amy Holmes and Roland Martin, who are two African-American journalists and commentators and smart people. They both have their own shows, he on CNN, she on PBS. And, um, you know, they talked to her about this and she listened. And I thought it was really good. And this is a piece of it. This is where uh, Megyn Kelly turns to Amy Holmes and says, what did you think about what I did and what's going on here? And this is Amy Holmes' um, reaction or response. What did you think? Uh, I'll be honest, when I saw the headlines, I cringed. And I was like, oh dear, um, that it does need to be talked about. Uh, and I had the sense that maybe there was a bit of a blind spot and an overcorrection of an overcorrection, if you know what I mean. Uh, that the history of blackface, as Roland laid out, is the caricature of African Americans as mentally diminished, emotionally immature, subservient, all for the mock, to mock African Americans for white entertainment. And maybe this was something that wasn't fully understood. But I did understand the idea of, but I love this character. I love Diana Ross or, you know, any number of African-American characters and real people historically. But even there, Megan, Hollywood also has a disreputable history of hiring white actors to play ethnic minorities because of racist casting practices. So instead of hiring a talented black actor or Native American or Hispanic American, you'd have a white actor putting on dark face to play that character. Even if it was meant to be respectful or thoughtful um, and reflective, it still reflected in our culture a non-acceptance of ethnic minorities uh, in media representation. Yeah, so, you know, what a transmission to the millions of people who are watching that show that Amy Holmes gave, and so did Roland Martin. I'm not gonna play him, but it's worth looking it up if you can find it, because he too had more of a masculine transmission. And it was great. It was, you know, when we talk about the conversation we have to be having, this was at least a part of it. This was a part I hadn't heard before. And I felt like uh, Megyn Kelly had a lot of real sincerity around listening and, um, and in her apology. But alas, it turned out that yesterday it seemed that she was going to go. They didn't actually play her show live. They played a rerun, I guess. And, um, and so it's funny. I, I had uh, some friends over for dinner last night. And these are good, you know, Trump-hating, card-carrying, bolder liberals. And, you know, these, these, this is a couple that was talking seriously about moving to Canada when Trump was elected. You never know how serious that is, but they thought it deeply. Uh, and the, the one talked about it primarily, but he said he was just outraged over Megyn Kelly having to be taken off the air, that her sincere apology, her consciousness raising in real time in front of all of us wasn't good enough. And that it's not, it's a bad thing when people have to go away when they some, say something stupid like that. And I, Nobody, nobody means. I could feel that way too. I could feel other ways as well, but I could feel that way, you know. And, and then he had something that, you know, it, it, he said something that really like chilled me to the bone. He said, it makes me want to support Trump. 
And I understand and can feel that too. Uh, and at least I can get what Trump is doing, where there is a, a um, pushback against what is essentially, and we see this from an integral perspective, it's a progressive thought police. Not that every previous stage doesn't also have their version of a thought police, but so does green progressive uh, culture, because it's also monoperspectival. It thinks that this way, its way is the only way. And it's analogous to, you know, down in amber or blue, we would say that this is traditionalism, uh, it would be a re religious fundamentalism, where, you know, any mistake has to be punished and severely, because that's the thing that keeps people in line. And, you know, in, in traditionalism, it's a, you know, the, it's, we can't be having people going around questioning the divinity of Jesus Christ. You know, if, if, if we did, that would put the whole project in jeopardy, which is remaking the world, you know, to make it perfect. And that's what progressives are doing, too. But they're, you know, other people aren't buying it. And there, this is a reaction in the body politic as we approach midterms that I worry about, you know, turning people like my friend last night into um, sympathetic to Trump and his, pro his project. So, you know, so, but then I go back and this morning, <laughs> I read uh, John Panay Awozik again, and here's the end. So here's his conclusion, because he's a columnist, he can have an opinion. He writes about Megyn Kelly and this whole affair and about the, how NBC is apparently firing her. He says, I don't pretend to read minds or hearts. Maybe Kelly truly sees this time that she said something wrong, as opposed to just unwise, and that she genuinely, genuinely wants to learn, grow, and change. People can do this. They should perhaps not be paid $17 million a year to do it. Maybe when it comes to mat matters this basic, the learning part should come first. So I feel that way too. <laughs> uh, I've convinced myself this, uh, that this otherwise weak-mindedness of mine is actually integral, this, this, this pattern of believing the last one I read. But I think, you know, the idea is I'm trying to let them all in, and I do. I just naturally do at this point. And I just sort of explain it that it, human development working itself out, you know, and the, all of these perspective in the pot, and it's not always pretty, and it's not always fair, uh, but there's a potency to it. There's a fruit that uh, comes out of it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the practice, or my practice, and you can do it yourself in the privacy of your own home, and you can even do group therapy. And that brings me to my next example, and that is the Dr. Phil show. And uh, for those of you who aren't American or don't get Dr. Phil, he is um, a psychologist uh, he, where he has a show on um, uh, daytime TV, very popular show, has been on for many years. And his 
uh, he normally does things where he's working with people who are in marriage problems or, you know, that sort of thing, or, or, or children or that, that sort of thing, family therapy in a way. But this week he did a show called What You Need to Know About White Privilege, where he essentially took viewers through a diversity training process that is really just one of the best I've ever seen. And um, he had a whole big panel of people. He had these college students there that worked on this process for us all to watch. It was very, you know, I'm a seminar guy and it was very, very well done. And I'm gonna play a couple segments from it. One is um, on microaggressions. And um, so here it is. And um, this is after uh, a, a, another process that I'll play in a minute, but here it is. Before the taping, the producing team asked the audience to write down a microaggression that was directed at them. So if you filled out the poster board this morning, please stand up now and hold up your board. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're fully Hispanic, but can't speak Spanish at all. So you've had people say that to you. Yes. And what was your reaction? Um, growing up, I've been told that I was a disgrace to both my countries, and it kind of made me feel really bad just for not speaking Spanish. Wow. Okay. And yours. But you can't be Jewish. Your nose isn't big. Seriously? You had people say that to you? Yeah. What did you say? It just made me really, really angry because I'm extremely proud to be Jewish. Okay. And yours. You have good hair for a black girl. Yes, I've had people say this to me and touch my hair and say that it's soft. And um, I just think it's really ignorant and it's frustrating to me um, because it's, it implies that there's a standard of beauty. And if your hair is coarse or textured, that that's somehow not beautiful. All right, we got to take a break. Okay, I warned you, those are microaggressions. But do you notice the big feelings on the receiving end? And... Is there any microaggressions you might relate to in your own life? And, you know, this increasing sensitivity, it can look like um, overindulgence, it can look like narcissism, and it can go in those directions. But properly done, it's just increasing the, um, the, the, the container that we live in, you know, the, the world, the world space that we live in. We can allow more in. And... You know, this is the stuff of therapy. This is what we do in therapy. We see our lives and we examine our lives in a way where we develop a witness that is bigger than the old identities. And, um, and this is a very powerful thing. And this is, uh, I thought the show was really astonishing actually. And I will play the next piece and this is where he's doing a diversity training with, um, on white privilege with these college students. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory. And if you're listening to it, just it's, it, you're not going to be able to see what they're doing, but they're actually asking people 30, I think there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen or 15 students, and they're asking them questions and they have to step forward or back if they are if those questions are a yes or no so here it is i'm going to be asking you a series of 35 questions if your parents work nights and weekends to support your family 
take one step back. If you are able to move through the world without fear of sexual assault, take one step forward. If you can show affection for your romantic partner in public without fear of ridicule or violence, take one step forward. The experience today definitely helped me see the world in a different perspective. I kept stepping forward. And as I was keep going forward, it was like, am I really that privileged? I didn't feel like I deserved to be up there. If you have ever been diagnosed as having a physical or mental illness, if the primary language spoken in your household growing up was not English, if you have ever tried to change your speech or mannerisms to gain credibility, I'm from a small town in Connecticut, so I've heard like I live in a bubble because I'm white or because I have blonde hair, like, doesn't mean I should be in front of them. If you can go anywhere in the country and easily find the kinds of hair products you need that match your skin color, if you were embarrassed about your clothes or house while growing up, if you can legally marry the person you love, if you love, would never think twice about calling the police when trouble occurs, take one step forward. I'm already a double minority being African American, also being a homosexual male. I'm always like, expecting myself to be further back. If you can see a doctor whenever you feel the need, if you have ever been the only person of your race, gender, in a classroom or workplace setting. It felt like those who were in the front were more comfortable. There was one female behind me. It felt like being a woman possibly come on with an extra challenge. If you get time off for if your you religious job during your high school and college years, if you have ever felt like there was not adequate or accurate representation of your racial group, sexual orientation group. I think one of the biggest things that I have counting against me would be just sexuality. It taught me that there's still a long ways that we as a society need to go. If you have ever been bullied or made fun of based on something you can't change, take one step back. Looking at the people behind you, it just makes you think about why people don't get the opportunities that I do. There were more than 50 books in your house growing if up. If you studied the culture or the history of your ancestors in elementary school, if you were ever offered a job because of your association with a friend or a family member, was ever laid off or unemployed, not by choice, if you were ever uncomfortable about a joke you overheard related to your race, ethnicity, gender, appearance, or sexual orientation, take one step back. Thank you all for participating today. I'm very aware of my white privilege, but it really showed through when I looked behind me and most of the people in the very back were people of color. I was in the back. I'm not ever in the back of anything that I do. Being in the front made me feel uncomfortable. It's an awkward feeling to like be up there and know that like everyone behind you can look at you, right, but you can't look at them. I landed in the very back of the crowd. I was a bit surprised. I didn't have very much growing up, but I've always thought that there are other people who had less. I didn't know I was going to end up in the front. The way I was raised by the border in Mexico, that I would be less privileged, though it's weird to know that I am actually doing good. I think talking about white privilege in a room full of white people is awkward, but in a room full of different ethnic groups, I think it's necessary. It's a very sensitive topic. You don't want to offend anyone, but it's true. There are racial and social disparities in America, and these issues need to be talked about. All right, so I thought that was a really powerful exercise. And what it revealed to me, having been to many sensitivity diversity trainings, uh, that 
there's a new level of complexity that we're ready to hold here. And we can see that privilege doesn't exactly line up the color or gender or class or you know sexuality. And then that binary system kind of breaks down, you know, and we see the interiors and we see the, the particularity of each of these people. And we have to look closer because it's, you know, not so simple anymore. And we see the young black woman in the back who said she never felt like she was ever in the back of anything in her life. And the guy in the front who was guilty and the other guy in the back, the black guy who said he noticed that while he could see everybody else, not everybody could see him. And, um, and that's just each one of those, you know, has its own depth and connection that's more complex and therefore more, you know, juicy and satisfying than it is when it's, you know, flatter. And it's not like that, you know, binary system didn't get us this far, but it is feels like it's time to move on because the, the other thing we're seeing is that the binary system generates a lot of resistance from the people who are on the wrong side of the binary. And, you know, people get it that there are some people that are just basically trying to flip the dominator hierarchy so that the victim is now on top. And we see this in certain communities in Naropa, where when I was in my Masters of Divinity program there, we were, you know, exquisitely sensitive to social justice and things like that. And we were, this was just getting going. But I gotta say that I was glad that I was gay when I was there because otherwise I was just a middle-aged white guy who had you know, done well in business. And um, uh, that didn't have the currency that I ended up needing. So, you know, it, it's, it, it, we, people game it, but this complexity thing, um, you know, just reveals a new level of development, I think. And when I can see it myself, when I think of my own development this year, you know, how I have yearly evolved since last October, that this is the most exciting thing I've discovered, to see people beyond their categories. And I don't always do it, and I certainly don't always do it well, but if I work as a practice, the thing that we do not to be successful, but to be faithful, that's what the definition of a practice, and we try to see through the veil, of, oh, you're a woman, or you're black, or you're Hispanic, or you're on the other side of the street politically, or whatever it is. And to you know, keep the windshield wiper going so that we can actually look in the eyes of the person who is in front of us and see them more for who they are, this human being that's in there, beyond all of the veils and beyond all of the categories and that there's no two alike. In all of time and space, there's no two alike. Never has been, never will be. You know, right there, there's a re-enchantment that arises that is delicious. And in a way it has a, it's akin to that familial feel that we thought we had left behind when we had to grow up out of our childhood. And, you know, Again, it's a practice. We, 
don't even have to let the other person know we're doing it. Sometimes it's better not to, but to, you know, realize they're supposed to be there. They came into my life. I don't care if they're checking out my groceries. Here they are. And I can see them and I can see the light reflect and I can see their movements and I can just feel whatever, you know, we don't want to make them uncomfortable, but you know what I mean? So it's liberating in that way. And, um, and it's also empowering because all of a sudden I don't have to define myself by my categories and by my privileges. And, um, and that's a liberation, that's an empowerment. And we see that there are some people who are great examples to the rest of us who just liberate themselves. Um, it's like Walt Whitman said, I, are, I ordain myself loosed of limits. And, um, and I, I was thinking about that when I read an interview with Shonda Rhimes, who's in the news again. She's a big producer in Hollywood, and she produced Grey's Anatomy and I think Scandal. And she just signed a big mega contract with Netflix to create shows for them. And she's a black woman. And she is talking in this interview about how she lost, I don't know, 60 or 80 pounds or something. She's a single mother. And she did all of this, you know. Uh, while she was one of the biggest showrunners in Hollywood. And I, re I remember the interviewer asking her, so, you know, how you had so many strikes against you. You were black, you're a woman, you were overweight, you're a single mother. How did you do this? And Shonda had the best answer. She said, you know, I was just never going to let those things hold me back. What? You mean we have a choice? <laughs> and it turns out we do. And she did. I mean, she had this other thing she had to do. She had to make these shows. And so she wasn't going to let those other things hold her back. Next question. And I love that. And I think that tells us a little bit about what this next phase of evolution can be as we move into integral consciousness where we're seeking to hold multiple worldviews in a bigger, more intelligent and uh, loving space, actually. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a worthy philosophical question to ponder what is an ideal world. And I ponder that question. I think about the sacred world to come. And I have to say, I have to think that it will be, you know, egalitarian. And I'm realizing that it doesn't have to be egalitarian in the sense that people will always have different talents and capabilities and motivations and whatever. And that's great. We want that, including the people who don't have, you know, a whole lot of any of that. Uh, and then maybe they you know, have other things that they bring to the party. It's all unfolding mystery here. And I think that, you know, in terms of egalitarianism, it doesn't even have to be equal in terms of outcomes in the sense that I think that an ideal world will allow for people to create their own lives. You know, I also think that material wealth will have found its proper level in the scheme of things. But, uh, you know, people will be able to have more or less. And I think that that, 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 that helps because I always felt too totalitarian otherwise. But Here's what else I realize, that that is not the equity that matters. 
what matters is that we are all equally precious, that we are all equally welcome and equally seen, and that everybody has 100% privilege to be exactly who they are. And, um, and we're all supposed to be there. And as long as we're not hurting other people, um, and not just their feelings, um, then we're supposed to be here. And I think that this week was a big consciousness raising for me and for, I think, millions of people as we watched these two very different but very similar in terms of their effect, I think, stories play out. So I think that's it. All right, what fun. Uh, thank you again, uh, Integral Life, for hosting the Daily Evolver Live on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 1 p.m. Mountain Time on IntegralLive.com. And if you want to see my back library and body of work, you could go to DailyEvolver.com. And I have pretty much everything I've ever done on there, uh, at least in the last several years. And... Um, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Daily Evolver. Bye, folks. <laughs>